I want to let you know about a free book that's been given to our church from Crossway Publishing. Uh, this book is called Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. I invite you to get a copy. They're just right outside that door on the table there. Uh, feel free, just one copy per family if you would. But this is a great resource if you ever feel like you are getting into a rut in your prayers, you're struggling through knowing how to pray or what to pray. Uh, this book really helps you understand how to pray the scriptures back to God. Uh, it's a really valuable resource. So even if you're not going to read it immediately and you may read it one day, feel free to go and take a copy there. Let me pray and then we'll turn our attention to Amos chapter 1. Father, we thank you for your grace that you show to us so often. In fact, Lord, you show it to us constantly. We praise you this morning for your patience with us. There always seems to be a lot going on in our hearts and our minds. It's easy for us to be distracted, to go astray, to wander in our thoughts and our emotions and our desires. To forget the immense privilege of being with other brothers and sisters and singing songs of praise and reciting your word together and hearing your word read over us and meeting with you in prayer together and, and now even hearing the teaching of your word. These, these are great gifts from you, God. And it's easy for us to forget how wonderful they are, how much of a blessing this is. It's easy for us to treat all of life with an attitude of busyness. Rushing from one thing to the next. I just ask this morning, Lord, that you would help us to. Slow down a little bit. To realize what an honor it is to hear from you in your word. To open our hearts and our minds to the teaching of the scriptures and the application that your spirit brings to us. We do ask that you would illuminate your word, that you would guide us into all truth, that you would help us to remain faithful in our understanding of it and accurate in our interpretation of it. We ask that you would conform us to the likeness of Jesus that you would lead us to repentance and to find life there. That you would show us this morning what matters to your heart. Grant us the, abil the ability, Lord, to divinely listen and divinely focus. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been my intention this week, I have studied for this purpose, that we would take chapter 1 of Amos, verse 3, and walk through to chapter 2, verse 16. Which, if you look, you would see quickly that is all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. And many of you mocked me and said it's impossible. And I stubbornly refused to listen until this morning. 
So just for safety's sake, I have built in three different stopping points in case we don't make it. But it is my intention and I have studied for the purpose of covering all of chapter one and all of chapter two today. And the reason is, as you will see in just a moment, because they go together and it's hard to break them apart. And it's Amos's intention that they go together. This is the beginning of his sermon if verse 2 if verse 1 is the introduction to the book and verse 2 was the prelude that he's introducing themes for the rest of his sermon this is where he begins to get into the meat of his sermon and he does so masterfully and he does throw so through patterns and poetry and rhetorical rhetoric and so it's it's not meant to be divided and it's It's hard to divide, and so I want to do my best to at least on the surface cover the majority of it and then come back maybe in a couple of the next couple of Sundays and look at a few more details. That being said, I want you to know that the theme and the purpose of this section, especially the first half, is for Amos to teach and highlight that God has authority over all people of the earth. Not only does God have the authority over the whole earth, He also demands that the whole world be accountable to Him. And in fact, the whole world will be accountable to Him. And by the time we get to Israel and Judah in the second half of chapter 2, we're going to find Amos turn the switch and say, not only is God possessing authority over the whole earth, He also possesses authority over you, His people. And not only will the whole world give an account to God for their actions and their thoughts and their deeds, but also you, his people, will give an account to him for what you've said and done and thought and desired. I think we'll see that readily as we read. Let's look at Amos chapter 1, verse 3. And let's read to at least chapter 2, verse 3. Amos declares in a kind of emphatic, normal, prophetic way, Speaking on behalf of the Lord here, and the Lord is is really um, the name for God, Yahweh. I'm speaking for the one and only true God, the God of Jerusalem, Yahweh, not these pagan gods. And he says in verse three, thus says Yahweh. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have threshed Gilead. With threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Aden, and the people of Syria shall go, go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I'll send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. And I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. 
because they have delivered up to delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kirioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet, I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. A sobering uh, pattern of indictments here. He begins before he ever even gets to Israel. Remember, Israel's the subject of his prophecy back in chapter 1, verse 1. He had this, uh, these words concerning Israel. Israel's his target, but before he gets there, he starts with these six nations, foreign nations. Now, altogether, from chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 2, verse 16, there's eight blocks of patterns. Two of those blocks are Judah and Israel. They kind of distinguish themselves from the rest. The first six here are these foreign nations, and they follow, as you saw, the same basic structure and pattern. Now, these nations aren't all mentioned by name, though their cities and capital cities are mentioned. Here's the six. They are Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. Now, these six foreign nations, interestingly enough, surrounded Israel on the compass. Tyre was north and west. Syria was north and east. Ammon and Moab were straight east. Edom was south and east. Philistia was south and west. Mediterranean to the, to the straight west and Judah to the straight south. Amos is actually working around the compass of Israel, working around the nation, around working through their enemies, saying all of these nations that surround you have incurred God's judgment. These were the nations that Israel regarded as enemies. Nations that they declared unclean and evil and not following God and pagan. And so they not only saw them as political enemies, they even possessed social disdain for them. Thus, when Amos begins his, his sermon and his message, they would have been delighted to hear God's judgment upon these people. They would have rejoiced. They would have listened with eager expectation to witness God pour out His wrath on these ungodly rebels, these 
wicked nations, they would have responded likely with great shouts of celebration. Amen. Applause. These ungodly, evil pagans are getting what they deserve. Now the pattern, as you saw, as Amos spelled it out there, is this. It has three components to it. He begins with a with a, uh, establishing a pattern of wickedness. Every one of these sections begins with the phrase, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. That doesn't mean God is waiting for them to commit a fourth act of wickedness before he judges them. It also doesn't mean God's only judging them because they've only committed three or four acts. It means there has been a perpetual time and, and, and continuation of evil within their, their land, among their people. The second aspect of this pronouncement, the pattern, is they establish an example of wickedness. Each one of them has something specific said about them, and none of them are meant to be exhaustive. God's not only punishing these nations because they commit one singular sin. These sins are examples of a broad group of sins in each land. God's drawing out just one. To highlight that what they are getting in judgment is warranted. And then each pattern, thirdly, tells how God will judge them. What the consequences will be. Now in none of this does Amos intend for us to be bogged down in the details. He references specific events. Literal events. Especially in terms of the the sin that they've committed. These are real, literal transgressions. But nowhere does he intend for us to only get bogged down in considering each and every single minute detail. He wants us to take the picture as a whole. Now, yes, there may be lessons to learn from each indictment that the Lord issues upon each specific nation and each specific sin that they commit. But the larger, grand picture here is God is fed up with the wickedness of the nations. And so he's going to judge them. And his judgment will be severe. The lesson is unmistakable. Everybody is accountable to God. Now an important note before we do consider each one of these transgressions briefly. It has been asked... How can God punish a pagan nation that does not have his word? That is not set apart by him as his own people. How can God be just in punishing a whole group of people who don't have the Old Testament scriptures? Well, Amos subtly tells us why. He tells us, first, these things aren't specific. These sins aren't specific to the law of God. These are sins against basic humanity. Basic sins. Basic human behavior violations. Number two. Amos subtly teaches us. Everybody's responsible to God. Because God has given everybody a conscience. Paul elaborates on this in Romans chapter 2. In verse 14 he says. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, 
while their conscience also bears witness. Even their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Every person can be accountable to God because God as creator has given every person a conscience and has written his natural law on their heart. Paul also says in Romans 1, they are without excuse. Brothers and sisters, friends, ignorance is no no plea before God's judgment. There is no adequate excuse when you stand before the Holy Creator and give an, an account of your wicked deeds and your wicked desires and your wicked words. There is nothing that will stand and suffice as an excuse. Now, thirdly, as I said already, Amos is reminding us over and over that God is the God of the whole earth, whether He is acknowledged as such or not. Rejecting God, denying God, refusing to believe God does not exempt one from God's judgment. Does not exempt one from accountability to God. So God is not only not just in punishing these nations, He's actually been merciful to them. If we go back and consider the pattern that each one of these blocks, each one of these nations has built within it, you remember that there's a pattern of wickedness that's been established. It means God has been patiently enduring with these people. He's been long-suffering with the nations, just like He's been long-suffering and patient with you and I. The point here is God's mercy will not be offered forever. He's been merciful to these nations, letting them have an opportunity to repent, hoping or letting them have an opportunity to look to the nation of Israel or look to the nation of Judah and, as was intended, see what righteousness is supposed to be. But God's mercy will not be extended forever. And when God pulls back His arm of mercy, there will be no excuse that any person can stand upon. God's judgment will be inevitable for individuals and for nations, whether they acknowledge it or not. Now let's consider here the very briefly the wickedness of these nations. I, I, I want to group them into three different groups of cruelty, taking two nations at a time. These acts of cruelty, they intensify as we move closer to the nation of Israel. As we progress through chapter 1 into chapter 2, they get worse and worse and worse. We begin with the nations of Syria and Philistia. Their cruelty is against humanity. It's a general cruelty against humanity. Syria is said to have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Now likely this refers to war. Damascus, verse 3, being the capital of Syria. This likely refers to war. Something that Syria did to Gilead in this wartime that was particularly unnecessary, particularly cruel, not required for victory. Threshing, we do know, is when seeds were scattered down. Grain that was harvested was scattered down and then it was 
beat or raked over with an instrument that often had iron at the end. Iron for its weight and its efficiency and to break apart the chaff in the grain so that the wind would carry the chaff like dust away. Well, the metaphor, the imagery here leads us to conclude that Syria, through the context of war, was particularly cruel to Gilead, going beyond what was necessary to win, win, crushing them beyond what was required, and then leaving them as dust to be blown around in the wind. Philistia, likewise, is in trouble with God because they sent an entire people into exile by giving them to Edom. Again, this is likely taking place in the context of war. It was not uncommon for people, countries, nations to take prisoners of war and to use them as slaves. But in this particular case, it appears that Philistia didn't even need them as slaves. They took these people and just sold them off. Treated human beings, created in the image of God, as nothing more than a product for profit. Whole people means that they had no regard for who they took captive, who they sold, man or woman, young or old, child or adult. It's a glaring reminder that not all is fair and not all is permissible, even in war, according to the standards of God. The point is that these two nations were cruel when it came to dealing with others, other nations, even other nations that they had no allegiance to, no treaty with. They were cruel beyond what was necessary. God expects that ordinary human behavior would be constrained by certain degrees of mercy and compassion and basic decency for other human beings. The indictment here is that there is no reason ever to be savagely cruel, unnecessarily cruel. The second group here, Tyre and Edom, their cruelty is against brothers. James Montgomery Boyce points out that they share that common word, that common language in these two uh, nations. They betray brothers. That likely refers to nations, other nations that, that they had a treaty with or they had some agreement with. They were supposed to possess peace with, perhaps even nations that they shared ancestry with. Tyree did the same thing as Philistia. They sold people to Edom, but this time it's added that they not only sold strangers, they broke the covenant of brotherhood, verse 9. They ignored the covenant that they had. They, they rejected the agreements and the shared understanding that they had with others. It's a next level sort of betrayal. 
betrayal. It's a personal, particular betrayal. It's somebody close to you, somebody that's supposed to be on your side, somebody that's supposed to be with you, but instead they, we say, stab you in the back, hang you out to dry, leave you in the dust. Edom, likewise, is going to be punished for betraying brothers. Verse 11, their betrayal is more than just selling people to exile. Their betrayal involves murdering their brothers. Now, I find it very interesting here that Edom is not condemned or punished because they bought slaves. The reason isn't because slavery is not bad. Slavery is bad. In fact, that's why the other nations are being punished. They took slaves and they sold slaves. Edom was the country buying all these slaves. But the fact that they're not condemned for their slavery, they're condemned for something else, is another example that this is not an exhaustive list. These are general acts of wickedness meant to be taken as examples of a broader corruption in all of these nations. Now, what did Edom do? Back to verse 11. They pursued their brothers with the sword. Not only did they just forget the covenant, neglect the agreements, they actually went after their brothers. It's proactive. They went on offense. They intentionally, deliberately chased after their brothers to kill them. Amos tells us they threw off all pity and they acted only in perpetual anger and wrath. We might say they burned with hatred at those that they were supposed to love. More than just betraying them to others. They took an active part. An active role in their demise. Some people read here and think this is Edom uh, acting against Israel. Edom and Israel are bound together by ancestry. They share the same ancestor Isaac. Edom comes from the line of Esau. Israel comes from the line of Jacob. And there was a particular war where Edom not only didn't come to Israel's defense, they actually profited from Israel's demise. Perhaps that's what's intended here. Regardless, the point is this. Betrayal in anger for personal benefit is something God despises. He takes no delight in the breaking of bonds, no delight in the breaking of promises, even for pragmatic or economic or military reasons. Well, the third group here, real quickly, is cruelty against the helpless or cruelty against the defenseless. And notice how the intensity, again, is ramped up. Verse 13, the Ammonites are in trouble with God because... They ripped open pregnant women in Gilead to kill their babies. They did that for political reasons. Montgomery Boyce again points out they did it as future planning. They wanted to expand their kingdom. They wanted to enlarge their borders. And just in case the future generations of Gilead, the children, descendants, grew up and took 
revenge. Let's go ahead and get them out of the way now. So they ruthlessly kill not only women, not only the elderly, not only the toddlers and the children. They rip open pregnant women to kill the unborn babies. So that no one would threaten their political dynasty. It's an act of power for the purposes of power and greed. It is, church, the height of wickedness for selfish purposes. One of the most barbaric, savage tactics for political, political expediency. And you know it's a common occurrence even today. I've in recent weeks listened to different people give speeches in the news and particularly those seeking election or in Congress. And there's a trend right now for them to stand up and say, um, let me tell you what the Bible says about abortion. And it, they, they always say it says nothing. It says nothing about abortion. Quite clearly, they have not read the Bible. God despises the opening of pregnant women for selfish reasons. The killing of the helpless and the defenseless. It is the most grotesque act. So much so, I'll just mention real quickly in verse 14 and verse 15. God's judgment on them is particularly severe. He kindles a fire. It's going to devour them. And there's going to be a battle that will ravage them. There's going to be natural disaster that's going to ravage them. To the point that their king and even their princes are in exile. Their entire country is going to be removed. Expired for their acts. Lastly, cruelty against the defenseless and the helpless. We find Moab in chapter 2 verse one, Moab burned to lime or to, to dust, to ash, the bones of Edom's king. Now, if you're like me, you might sit back and say, what's wrong with that? Edom was obviously an evil nation. They're buying and selling slaves. They're killing their brothers. Who cares if their king's been desecrated? God cares. Because this was an act that was needless. It served no other purpose than to humiliate a people. It's one thing to kill or conquer a king. It's another thing to desecrate him in death. To humiliate his nation. If the killing of children was future planning. The desecration of a national hero like a king. Is backward planning. It's a. It's a way to ensure that history would mock them, that they would have nothing left. It's beyond simply conquering a people. It's beyond simply defending yourself as a nation. It's an unnecessary act of cruelty. And the point is this again. God is done with it all. 
he pronounces in each one of these scenarios punishments. The punishments vary as much as the crimes committed vary. But they all have this one thing in common. God's judgment will be total, comprehensive, absolute, and powerful. Amos is setting up the stage for Israel and he's trying to remind them and trying to illustrate for them that God does not give a mere slap on the wrist for sin. He brings His full wrath to bear against sin and sinners in His judgment. There is no casual reprimand. There is no mindless ignoring There is no sweep it under the rug or look the other way. God deals severely with sin because sin is severe. Now, as I said before, at this point, Israel would have been elated, cheered in hearty agreement, shouted with pleasure at Yahweh's coming judgment on these pagan, unworthy nations and Knowing human nature, I would not be surprised if we're tempted to think the same thing about our enemies. We might respond like Israel. Looking at those we disagree with, those we think are doing wrong, those we might classify as evil and wish for their demise and celebrate their destruction. Asking God to punish them as enemies of us. We tend to forget that they're people. And while we relish in their doom, we tend to forget our own sin. I struggle with the disconnect today between the, the actions and response of the church compared to the church throughout history. The church throughout history was marked by sacrifice and martyrdom and even serving and praying for those who were persecuting them and killing them. In fact, large portions of the church today are doing the same thing all over the world. But the Western church seems to be confusing themselves between sheep and wolves. They'd rather viciously snarl their teeth fight with claw than to pray for their enemies and love and bless those who persecute them and act like Christ in gentleness and compassion. Surely these nations in Amos 1 thought they were justified in what they were doing. After all, these are our enemies. Who cares if we burn their king to Ash, who cares if we betray them to another people? Who cares if we sell them off or if we thresh them with sledges of iron? They're enemies. We're nothing more than patriots. But in God's eyes, that's far from true. It's a dangerous thing to realize how easy it is to look at other nations 
even sinful social movements, even other political parties, it's easy to look at them and regard them as lesser, as worse, as uniquely evil, worthy of a unique kind of demise, worthy of even, we've heard this language, a unique kind of place in hell, and all the while forget that we are just like them without the grace of Christ. Brothers and sisters, God calls His people to respond to things differently. He does not permit us to be cruel beyond necessary, beyond requirement. He does not uh, in, in allow us to chalk something up as patriotism or national pride to the demise of others. He calls us to remember Everybody as an image bearer of God, a human being that needs not demise, but repentance, mercy, the gospel. Every one of the sins mentioned in chapter 1 are against people. That's where God's issue is at. It's not policy God's mad about. It's people. And the dealing with people and the forgetting that people are, in fact, people and they need mercy and they need compassion and they need to be pointed and instructed in the ways of God. So Amos lays out here at the very beginning that God is the God of the whole earth and that everyone will be held accountable by him and everyone will be called to account for their sin. And then he adds in chapter two. That includes us. He's gone around the compass. He's, he's proclaimed judgment on all the enemy nations, pagan nations surrounding Israel. And then masterfully and powerfully, he turns straight to Judah and Israel and says, you're next. If Jesus summarized what Amos is doing here, he's going to summarize it in the account where he says, quit worrying about the speck in your brother's eye while you have a log in your own. By the time Amos gets to chapter 2, verse 4, the, the hearts that were quick to rejoice in God's punishing of the pagan nations now are sinking within them as God's judging eyes look to them. Don't think you'll escape. Don't think you'll be called to an won't be called to an account. Don't think that you aren't expected to walk in true righteousness and sincerity of faith. Don't think I won't deal with you too. Brothers and sisters, the church today must be warned by the message of Amos because we live in a culture that is words don't even have it right it's messed up every direction it's messed up but here's the problem I perceive I am no societal expert a 
problem I perceive is the same problem as Judah in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. That the church, instead of walking and acting and responding according to the standards of God, they're too often molded and manipulated and conformed to the standards of secular society. And they respond with the same harshful, hateful rhetoric as everybody else in the world. And they distinguish themselves in this tribalistic mentality where they, they think and they act like we belong to the church, we're the people of God, and so we're better than the rest of you. And since we're better, you're not worthy. You're not worthy to be around. You're not worthy to, to hear the gospel. All you're worthy of is our revolt and our fighting and let me tell you, that's exactly where Israel was at when Amos preached to them. We're the people of God, and we have it all together. And all these other nations around us on the compass, including Judah, they can be punished and they can be judged. And we're going to cheer from the dead center of it all. And God finally says, I'm after you too. Look in. Verse 4, just real quick. I told you I had three built-in stopping points. I'll stop at the first one I had built in. But I want to mention Judah just quickly here. Judah's... I can cover Judah. We'll stop at the second stopping point. Judah's uh, sin is different from the others. For three transgressions of Judah, for four I will not revoke the punishment because... They have rejected the law of the Lord. All the foreign nations, their sins were cruelties against other human beings, cruelties against people. Judah's sin is rejecting God. Remember, Judah is the southern kingdom of the people of God. They're the, when the kingdom split, they're the, the people that stayed together, the two tribes that stayed together. Together and Jerusalem was their capital and they continued to follow the line of David and Solomon. So their sin in God's eyes is particularly heinous because they actually possessed God's word. And possessing God's word didn't seem to matter for them at this point in their history. They actually treated the law of the Lord just like the six pagan nations. They rejected it altogether, which we know what that means. You reject God's word, you reject God himself. And if you reject God, what else do you reject? Wisdom, knowledge, righteousness, guidance, holiness, proper conduct in living the human life in a fallen world. So, so Judah in verse 4, their punishment is that they've, or their indictment is that they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. It kind of carries this, this dual thing of not only have they rejected, which might be believing or thinking about God's word, they actually don't even do it in their conduct. Instead, be, beyond just rejecting God's word, look what they do. They actually go on the the offense, they're, they're actually proactive in going after lies. Doesn't that sound familiar? 
it's human nature repeated again because Paul says the exact same thing about fallen humanity in Romans chapter 1. They exchange the truth about God for a what? A lie. What did Judah do wrong? They rejected God's law. They rejected the word of God. And they chased after lies. As a result, they're led astray. It's a broad category phrase, led astray. It, it's not in one specific way. Since they reject not just a portion of God's word, but all of God's word, since they reject not just part of God, but all of God, well, then they're not just astray in part of their life. They're astray in every area of their life. Furthermore, they don't just go after lies proactively and follow after lies until they're led off course. Look at verse 4. They go after the lies in which their fathers walked. You know, if, if you aim something at a, at a target and you're just a, a little bit off of dead center, the longer the object travels, miles later, you'll be light years off the target. What probably started with their fathers as slow compromise for the sake of efficiency or the sake of, of whatever else, now leads generations later to their whole people being judged by God Himself. It's a good lesson for us, church. What you and I do today as Trinity Baptist Church, covenanted people in this body, affects what this church does in generations. That's not the point, what I want to bring out here. At the end of verse 4, they, they go after that which their fathers walked in. In other words, it means for generations they've been following lies. And not only for generations, but since they've rejected God's law, they have not heeded the warnings and even the threats that they should have recognized in the behavior and ideas of their fathers. They should have looked at their forefathers and said, that was wrong, we won't do that. Instead, they began to interpret their relationship with God in the light of their culture, their society, their nation, the actions of their forefathers, instead of vice versa. Again, I am no sociological expert by any means, and certainly not a church expert. In fact, I wouldn't say I'm an expert at anything except maybe eating. But I think this so describes the American church. We formed an American Christianity. A Southern Christianity, a Baptist Christianity, a white Christianity, a black Christianity. And on down the line, it's inevitable sooner or later it will be no Christianity at all. It will be going through the motions, formal religious motions and rituals in the name of God that are grounded hardly in true interpretation of Scripture. If that's not where we're at, then be warned that's where we could be. 
We can think that we're doing everything right. We can think that we're following the Bible. We can think that we're acting as the church correctly. We can think all of these things and not even realize that we're all products of our culture. That's one of the greatest dangers for for human beings is our limited, finite sight and understanding and not being able to easily recognize where our culture influences us, including in our faith. That's why we must always come back to the Word. That's why we must always submit everything in examination to the Scriptures. That's why we must lay everything at the feet of God and say, correct us where we're wrong. If we're elevating our traditions or our society or our culture, you know how many churches, how many Christians in the name of cultural relevance have actually ended up denying the whole Christian faith? Too many. And you and I are not immune from that danger we might be reading the bible through our framework god will not have that we have to be a people faithful to the scriptures it is the only thing enduring the only thing timeless the only thing that reveals to us the true nature of the true god and his standards and offerings Brothers and sisters, it's a it's a warning text this morning. It's a heavy text. And the point is this. Look at how God calls the nations to account. And then look how he calls Judah to account. At this Israel might have even celebrated. Remember Israel and Judah didn't have the greatest of relationships. They were split for a reason. They rebelled from one another, and they were often immersed in civil war and conflict. At this, Israel might have even shouted the loudest, Yes, let Judah be punished. We're the true Israel. Yet again, God's going to turn His gaze to them. And those words in verse 6, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, should induce significant humility. Very quickly. And I'll talk about this again next week as we consider Israel. What do we do with a wrathful God like this who looks at all of our failures and says, you will give an account for them. You will have to answer. You'll have to answer for your cruelty. You'll have to answer for your rejection of the law of the Lord, for your greed and compassionless acts. What hope do we have? Like I said, I'll come back to this and consider this next week, but let me just finish with John chapter 3, verse 36. There are other worthy texts, but this one I want to highlight. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's the reason I want to highlight this verse, because in Amos chapter 1 and 2, we see the wrath of God. 
getting ready to be poured out. It's it's his warning. Get ready. It's coming. Judgment is coming. And in verse 36 of John chapter 3, we're reminded that indeed we're all under the wrath of God. Because every one of us can find ourselves in the troubles of the six nations in Amos 1 or in, in the troubles of Judah. We've all been cruel. We've all rejected God's word at some point or another. We've all chased after lies instead of truth. The wrath of God is rightly poured out, Romans 1, on unrighteousness and ungodliness, which all of us are that. So the wrath of God isn't going to be on you if you're an unbeliever this morning. It's presently on you. It's not a future thing. It hovers over your soul right now. And the only escape is what's in the first part of verse 36. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. How do I remove the wrath of God? What absolves my guilt? What, what pardons me from God's judgment and, and melts away God's wrath for my sin? It's running to hide yourself in the sun. Who took on every ounce of that wrath for you? Jesus, the gentle shepherd, the lamb of God, was regarded as cruel so that you can be forgiven. Jesus, who perfectly obeyed God and kept the letter of the law down to the very minute detail, was regarded as rejecting the law of the Lord so that you can be forgiven. Jesus regarded as opening the pregnant woman's womb so that you can be forgiven. Jesus, who calls us His brothers and lays His life down for us, regarded as betraying His brothers on the cross so that we could be forgiven. The wrath of God resting on His Son so that whoever believes in Him would not have God's wrath anymore, but would have God's eternal life. We are all in the position to receive wrath until we find forgiveness in Jesus. The only hope you and I have is in Christ. And it's enough. Christ is enough. Christ removes God's judgment. Christ replaces God's wrath with love and life and acceptance and adoption. Christ welcomes those who have rebelled against God. Christ is enough. And God's hand of mercy and God's patience, patient endurance is still extended today so that all of us can be saved. We can find mercy now. Brother and sister, if you know that you are born again, if you've received the mercy of God through Christ, if you have been changed from deserving wrath to now receiving life, perhaps repentance is still in your response. Perhaps shoring up your pursuit of holiness. 
But I know for certain, gratitude should be in your response. Thankfulness and praise to God for giving His Son so that we who deserve this wrath are actually forgiven and made right with God. Father in heaven, we thank You that Your Word does warn us. It gives us heavy things. It weighs on our minds and our souls. And it is convicting when Your Spirit applies it. It's been convicting to me, God. But You convict us to protect us and You convict us to save us and You convict us so that we would walk in righteousness and You know that the path of righteousness is where flourishing happens because it's where fellowship with You happens. Oh God, thank You for revealing even heavy things to us. And we ask that You would forgive us of our sins and keep forgiving us of our sins and keep pointing us to our need for our Savior, even if we have to be made hopeless. Make us hopeless so that we might see the light of hope in Christ. Draw us in, Lord. Save the lost. Stir up your people to gratitude and worship. We thank you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.